thank you. Uh, thank you for coming out. A great crowd tonight. Uh, in, in preparing for this forum, I thought it would be important to disclose that I live in an HOA. However, I soon realized that there's really no need to disclose that, although I guess I kind of am now. Uh, most owners of houses built in the last few decades live in a community governed by a homeowners association. In fact, since the North Carolina Planned Community Act was passed in the late 90s, all planned communities must have an HOA. And that legislation uh, defines a planned community as any housing development that has at least 20 lots. In North Carolina, there are now nearly 13,000 HOA communities. This is the fifth highest number in the country. And nationwide, there are about 324,000 HOA communities, according to the main HOA industry trade group. And if you believe that same trade group, most residents of these communities are happy with this arrangement. Whatever the numbers are, I think we can all agree homeowners concerned about the power of HOAs are making their voices heard, and they have the attention of some state lawmakers. In 2012, there was a House committee dedicated to studying HOA concerns, and there have been bills introduced in the last few years to curb the power of HOAs. Some minor bills have passed, although I guess the definition of what is minor is certainly in the eye of the beholder. Uh, we have three great guests, great guests tonight with different viewpoints and perspectives on how HOAs are run, the power they do have and don't have, and proposals to change HOAs. And, of course, we have all of you. We have people with microphones in the audience, as Mark had mentioned a few minutes be before, and we will uh, be reaching out to you shortly. Now, let me introduce our guests. Bob Breathen, to my far right here, is president of the Stevens Grove HOA Board in Huntersville. Stephen, Stevens Grove is a 304 home development located off Beatty's Ford Road. Born and raised in Rochester, New York, Mr. Breathen lived in Florida and Connecticut before the information technology profession brought him and his family to North Carolina. He has served on the Stevens Grove HOA Board for six years, and including the past five as president. Michael Hunter, in the middle, is an attorney with the Horak Talley firm in Charlotte. He pra his practice focuses on community and condominium association law, and he represents more than 500 homeowners associations across western North Carolina. His expertise includes debt collection, foreclosure, and lien enforcement. Mr. Hunter writes a column on HOA-related topics that appears in the Charlotte Observer. He is also a former assistant attorney with the Mecklenburg, uh, Mecklenburg County Sheriff's Office. And Representative Rodney Moore, to my immediate right, serves in the North Carolina House. Uh, it's District 99, which is in the eastern part of Mecklenburg County. He's also managing par partner of Providence Moore Realty Company, a real estate brokerage firm in Charlotte. And he's a former vice chairman of the Charlotte Housing Authority Board. In the General Assembly, Representative Moore's priorities include issues that affect small and minority-owned businesses, along with homeowners' rights and the rights of seniors. And one of his legislative priorities is prohibiting HOAs from initiating foreclosure proceedings. So let's start tonight's discussion with that topic, because uh, you were the subject of foreclosure proceedings for $50 in dues that your board said you hadn't paid, but it turns out the board was wrong. First, how difficult was it to get that situation corrected? Well, first of all, Greg, uh, thank you for moderating this panel tonight, and it's great to see citizens come out for, for such a great topic uh, on a Thursday night where you could have been doing some other things. Uh, uh, absolutely correct. Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons why I became so um, 
I would say, interested in this particular subject and about how HOAs kind of govern over uh, their neighbors. It's because I was in an HOA once. Uh, I was in a, a community called Seven Oaks. It's, it's off of uh, Rocky River Road in Charlotte. And uh, me and my wife at the time uh, was served with a foreclosure notice. And the reason why was because our, our, uh, the attorney said that our HOA reported us that we were past due on our assessments. And it had accumulated to something like $4,000. And so we did some research and went back. And uh, we eventually kept going back and forth with the uh, attorney and with the uh, management company, well, with HOA, rather. And so we went to special proceedings courts. And uh, I had evidence that we never owed anything. We always paid on time. And uh, the case was eventually dropped. So I started digging about how many of these, of these foreclosures in this particular genre, how this, how this affects, you know, other, other homeowners. And uh, this was before I even thought about uh, running for public office. And uh, subsequently, I found that, you know, there is a, a clear pattern of, uh, of HOAs, some HOAs, not all HOAs, but some somewhat abusing the power that they, the statutory power that they have to uh, bring foreclosure proceedings against their neighbors. I think that that's fundamentally wrong. I think that it's fundamentally un-American. I think that it causes disharmony in the neighborhood when you have a select group of neighbors who can impose their will, so to speak, over another group of neighbors. And, and some of the complaints that I've uh, received, you know, in my time in the General Assembly, I would, you would be amazed by uh, some of the complaints and some of the reasons why. Well, how are they abusing their authority? If this, these usually happen when fines aren't paid, dues aren't paid, what's a homeowners association to do when someone just refuses to pay? Well, I think that, and be truthful about it, I understand that they're bad actors. Mm -hmm. But my, there again, I can only speak from my philosophy, and we, we've kind of vetted this in the General Assembly in the last three or four years, think that there is a way that we can come up where we can protect the HOAs so that they can get their, their assessments if they're justly, justly owed and also protect, also protect the rights of the homeowner so that once you, people don't realize, once you file a foreclosure and you're actually successful, then what does that do? That brings down the property value and the value of, of, of other uh, like properties in the neighborhood sometimes. So, so there, there, it's an ongoing debate in, in, in Raleigh about how we can, how we can best uh, mediate, uh, mediate that. Mr. Hunter, are there alternatives that work? Um, there are not really any effective alternatives. Um, the problem, one of the problems is in North Carolina, uh, for HOA debts, you've got two options. You can file a lawsuit, uh, and if it's less than $10,000, you can file that in small claims court. Uh, uh, your second option is filing a lien and then a foreclosure of that lien, and the foreclosure works very much like a mortgage foreclosure. 
the problem is uh, a lot of people are under the misconception that if you go to small claims court and get a judgment, you get paid. Well, that's not the case at all. Uh, if you get a judgment, a judgment is just a piece of paper signed by a judge saying someone owes a debt. Then you have to go about trying to collect it. Um, in North Carolina, judgment collection is made more difficult than a lot of other states because North Carolina does not have any type of wage garnishment uh, available to judgment creditors. And <clears throat> we really don't have any me uh, effective means of levying or garnishing on bank accounts, which basically means once you get your judgment, uh, your, your remedy is issuing what's, what's called an execution on the judgment, which is where the sheriff's office sends a deputy out who pays a visit to the debtor, asks him to pay it, and if he refuses, then the, the deputy can either levy on real estate or motor vehicles, and there's really, that's really about your only option. Uh, North Carolina has fairly generous exemptions uh, also, which means before everyone who has a judgment against them can protect a certain amount of their property from being seized by the sheriff to satisfy the judgment. And if the homeowner claims his, his home is exempt, you can't touch it. So the, the bottom line is it's very likely that the HOA, if you sue in small claims court and get a judgment, you're going to have an uncollectible judgment. Could, could that be a solution if, if there was that power to garnish wages? Would that? Uh, yes, but good luck getting that through the legislature. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Breathen, how often do you're president of the Stevens Grove HOA? How often do you have you file uh, foreclosures or file liens? Well, we're probably uh, lucky, uh, and it's one aspect with 304 homeowners. Uh, we take it very seriously as a board, uh, especially when I'm signing something like that. Uh, in the five years I've been on the board as a president, uh, I think I've signed three foreclosures. And uh, after long painstaking, make sure the process is done. And only the foreclosures we've signed are for homes that have been abandoned. Uh, we, we take it very seriously. It, it, it's, it's not like we think about overnight. We work very, very closely with our, our management company, Hawthorne Management, just to make sure we're doing it right. Because a, little, a year ago, Thanksgiving, I had to sign one. Of course, the other people on the board are saying, Merry Christmas, Bob. You know, it's like sending someone a foreclosure notice. But the home was empty. The people had walked away from it. So would we sign foreclosures if we had to in other situations? We probably would. That's our job. That's what we're held accountable for. Uh, and there are people in the neighborhood that hold you accountable for doing that. But we have not gone to battle like for something like that. Well, how often does this happen, uh, Representative Moore or, or Mr. Hunter? First of all, I guess, Mr. Hunter, how often are foreclosures being filed by HOA boards or liens? Um, well, it really depends on the community. I mean, you have some communities that have almost no delinquencies, uh, Back during the uh, housing uh, boom back in the early 2000s, you had a lot of starter home communities with, with people moving in with no money down, uh, so they really had no stake in the home. It was very easy for them just not to pay anything, and, and uh, those starter home communities saw very high rates of foreclosures. Uh, we have saw a lot of cases where the people would just walk away from the homes. They had zero equity in the home, so you know, it didn't matter to them. They would just walk away from it. So it really runs the gamut. I mean, you know, I've seen condo associations with 30% delinquency rates. I've got other, other HOAs that have almost zero. So it really depends on the community. Okay. Representative Moore, what are, what are your ideas to address this? I know this has been a priority of yours. Uh, we, we had a study group uh, 
a couple of study groups on this issue, as a matter of fact. Uh, I think I was talking to uh, Mike, and he was referencing a bill that happened in 2011 based upon a, a 2010 study group. And we did another one in 2011, and we tried to make some changes. I, I think one, one, of the, one of the things that I've been aware of, and, and just looking at this from an objective uh, point of view and trying to you know, feel everybody's angst about what's going on is that uh, I think, first of all, we need to go back and we need to properly educate the homeowner because a lot of the instances where homeowners get into trouble, uh, it's because they, 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 became, they weren't properly educated on the front end as far as what the covenants was, what was expected of them as a homeowner, what actual powers or privileges that this this entity HOA, which is very is just foreign to some people, uh, actually have in this particular community based upon uh, their covenants and declarations. And so, I think that's that's the the first step. But I also I also think that there has to be some type of uh, stopgap on some in place for some of the bad actors out there who who are quick, and there are instances of of HOAs and management companies being quick to uh, to uh, exercise the uh, foreclosure provision in the law. Mr. Hunter, would how quick are companies to issue foreclosure proceedings? Uh, well, I mean, a foreclosure is a last resort. Uh, I mean, obviously, the HOA has no desire to take someone's house away from them. They just want the debt paid, and that's the, the most effective and uh, cost-effective tool they have available to them. Uh, and what you have to remember is by the time it gets to a foreclosure, there have been lots and lots of opportunities for the homeowner to address it before then. Most HOAs or the management companies send out at least three late notices before it ever even goes to the attorney. Uh, the, the once it, and one of the, the last letters is actually mandated by law, and it's what we call a 15-day letter, and it basically tells the homeowner that uh, he or she has 15 days to pay the debt uh, without incurring any attorney's fees, or they can call someone with the HOA to talk about a payment plan. If the homeowner ignores that, then it, then it goes to the law firm. We file a claim of lien, then we send that to the homeowner along with yet another demand letter. Uh, and if the homeowner ignores that, only then is it even possible for us to foreclose. And the foreclosure has to be approved by a, a spe each specific foreclosure has to be approved by a board resolution. So it, it's not a you know rapid fire. Hey, you know you're 30 days in default. Foreclosure is filed. It's not that way at all. How long does it usually take before it gets to that process? From the state? time the homeowner misses a payment, it's probably a good six months before. Uh, typically, uh, five to six months before a lien is filed, and another couple months before a foreclosure is filed. Okay. So there's lots of opportunities in there for the homeowner to call and try to work out a payment plan or, or, or do something. Mr. Moore, would you agree or disagree with that? Well, what uh, Mr. Hunter is describing is uh, it, it may, that may be the process for some, but there are others who accelerate. Who would celebrate? Who accelerate. Okay. Uh, accelerate, right. not celebrate. Okay, that's us. Hopefully, they don't celebrate. <laughs> but who accelerate that action? Because this, the HOA law, uh, we're, we're we're really trying to put some type of reform together on the state level. But it's basically 
it's basically one of the most unregulated uh, parts of our uh, of our uh, statute. Uh, that and, and Mr. Hunter will probably disagree about this, and well, that's fine. Well, first, okay. But but what from some some of the some of the testimony that I received, some of the evidence that I've shown, where people have given me documentation step by step by step to 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 get to this result of a possibly foreclosure um, uh, filing. In some instances, it's stretched out. In some instances, it's a little bit short. In some instances, it's 90 days. some instances, it's six months, as Mr. Hunter said. So I guess it, it varies by the, the aggressiveness of the, the, of, the, of the management company and the HOA board. Um, I, that's that's just my experience. He, he's an attorney, so he's, he's talking about the, the legal process, but there are ways to accelerate it. Mr. Breathen, do you regard consider yourself an unregulated authority? Uh, no, <laughs> not at all. And I'm glad we take our time in our neighborhood because it, it's it's definitely six months at the most. And even to get to that point, you know, once you even go to a lien, that costs us money. And we are very conservative with our money in our neighborhood, believe me. So even to do that point would cost us HOM money. So you have to look at the reality. Even if we did it as a lien holder, would we even get anything out of it after the bank or anyone was it? So for us to even think about that, it's definitely, I think, even longer than six months how well, before we've gone to foreclosure on anybody. How much of this just comes down to personalities? If, if a, a board member just doesn't like this this homeowner who uh, and maybe the homeowner has a, a is annoying or doesn't express themselves in the right way but they might be right but then you can't there, there's no they overlook that and they just butt heads and things get out of control is that uh, what does that happen a lot mr. mr. hunter in those situations is it well what you have to remember is the decision to foreclose is not the decision of one board member it has to be a majority vote of the entire board and hopefully you've got a group of people at least one of whom is is level-headed and can look at it <laughs> look at it dispassionately um so i mean does it happen probably do you have cases where you have to tell board members you're out of uh, hoa groups that you're out of line absolutely oh yes uh, I mean, I have to, you know, probably at least once a week, I have to tell an HOA board uh, something they don't want to hear, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, they've handled a problem incorrectly or that they're being overly aggressive, um, you know, and I won't hesitate to tell them that. Mm-hmm. But one thing I always tell my HOA boards is you have to take the rules and the, the collection practices and they have to be applied consistently and uniformly to everyone. Mm-hmm. You can't play favorites and let your next-door neighbor slide on paying his dues and yet go after the guy that's around the corner. It has to be consistent and uniform. Does that regularly happen, or are there many cases yes. where that doesn't happen? Yes. Um, and Mr. Moore, I take it you disagree with that. <laughs> well, well, what you have to understand is when you have human beings interacting with other human beings, sometimes there's going to be biases, there are going to be issues with personalities. And if you have one individual who has the power to kind of stick it to his neighbor that he didn't like for the last three years, but now he's the president of HOA board, it, it, would, it would be presumptuous to, pres- to presume that that person 
would be able to, to, to not act on that dislike or whatever the case may be. So when you have human beings in situations, anything is, uh, anything is subject to, uh, to, to be the case. There again, uh, in a perfect world, um, those situations would not occur. But, but there again, you know, through the information that's come through my office, there, there has been instances of, uh, of uh, certain uh, homeowners uh, being targeted by, by the board because for, for whatever reason. So it, it, it definitely goes on. Not certainly not in any of the communities that Mr. C- Mr. Hunter uh, manages or, or advocates for, but it, it it does happen. Do they all have the guidance of an attorney? Are they required to? Well, uh, you have to have an attorney to file a foreclosure. Uh, I have some associations that file their own liens, and frankly, most of them screw it up. Um, and I think the state bar's position would be that uh, drafting and filing a claim of lien against a piece of real estate constitutes the practice of law and really should have an attorney because you have to do a title search before you file a lien anyway. Um, but, you know, they absolutely have to have an attorney to file the foreclosure. Mr. Breathen, how prepared are, was, were you when you became a member of the HOA board, and how prepared would you say your, your, your fellow board members are? Is, is there any training in dealing with all this, or is it... Pretty trial. Be nice if it was, but um, <laughs> no. I think other than a good dose of common sense, uh, I think the board that I'm on. There's one gentleman on there who's been there since uh, Shay turned the neighborhood over. The rest of us have been there like three to eight years uh, across the neighborhood. And uh, I think it's different walks of life. But I think part of it is that you have someone from the get-go that was been there for, from the day that it was turned over to the people that are there that we consider ourselves neighbors first. Board member second, uh, because I live next door to people, you know, um, and there's instances where people don't talk to me because I'm on the board, but they talked to me before I was on the board, you know. <laughs> so it's like, okay, there's people I work with that roll their eyes when, oh, you're on the board, and I said, Dave, you don't even live in a neighborhood that has a board. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that if there was some training or turnover, but there really isn't, mm-hmm. you get your turnover from the people that been on the board, and you share stories, or you get background from the management company uh, on what, what I'm doing. Am I doing it right? You do your research on the internet. You read a lot. I mean, that's, I think, if you really want to do the best job. Representative Moore? Well, I, I'm glad you asked that question because one of the, one of the uh, reforms that we had proposed was to have some type of uh, mechanism where Board, uh, board, board members, new board members, and also uh, established board members could get some type of training to really understand the, uh, the, the, the legality of what they're doing, understand the statutory uh, language, uh, because, you know, you can have somebody who's been there since moss, since mosses uh, ate your cloth, but if they don't understand the law, and what the statute clearly says, then you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna have, have situations where you're going you're gonna to have somebody who may not have the guidance of a good attorney or a good uh, community manager, and, and it's, it's gonna, they're, they're not going to be complying in the law, and it's still going to snowball and, and, and get worse a lot of times. Was this a good change, Mr. Hunt, Hunter? Um, yes, I think it was. Uh, 
I sense a but. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I, the foreclosure problem is, is not as, is, it, there's a lot more to running an HOA than just debt collection. And, and I'm all for board education. A lot of what I do in my practice is educating boards. One of the largest issues that HOAs face is apathy on the part of the homeowners. Uh, I have a lot of associations that can't get a quorum of its members to show up for the annual meeting to elect directors. Um, a lot of them have a hard time getting volunteers to serve on the board of directors or serve on committees. I would love to see mandatory board training, but the problem is that would, I think, disincentivize a lot of people from serving on the board. It's a challenging and thankless job enough as it is. If they knew they had to go take a class and get certified, I think that would discourage more people. Uh, it, on, on paper, yeah, I think it's great. And, and, and I, I probably do average of three speaking events a month trying to educate people. And with the column I write for The Observer and the, the blog I do, a lot of what I do is education. Um, and as I said, on paper, mandatory board education looks good, but I think boards who are already having a hard time filling board seats would find it even harder. We're going to be going to our audience here shortly, and we'll have some, um, some mic runners around. We do ask that you raise your hand if you'd like to speak, uh, keep your questions and comments on topic, and of course, we certainly expect civility from everyone here. Uh, in, in preparing for this forum, I, I read a lot about privatization, uh, that over the years, we've essentially created a numerous private governments in a way that have more authority than maybe the official local government, and, and that local governments allow this to happen so that they can get the property taxes and not be responsible for the services that HOAs provide through member dues. Uh, there's a book called Privatopia that uh, I read the other night that, that, that addressed a lot of this, this history, but is, is that essentially what's happened? Have we created these series of many private governments that aren't accountable to the public at large or don't, don't fall under the, any authority of, of the city at all and they can do what they want? Well, they don't necessarily fall under the authority of the city, but they absolutely have to be held accountable to their members. Uh, you have to remember, these HOAs are, are, are democratic creatures. If the homeowners don't like the way the board is running things, vote to bums out of office. It's that simple. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I occasionally have, have had the uh, opportunity to go to board meetings where a special meeting of the association was called specifically for the purpose of removing the entire board of directors. Uh, those are not uh, pretty sights, uh, but sometimes it's necessary. Uh, but here again, this goes back to the apathy problem that I was talking about earlier. Uh, so many homeowners don't bother to go to the annual meetings and involve themselves and educate themselves about what's going on in the community. That's how a lot of times uh, bad board members, for lack of a better word, can stay in office is because people don't care. Well, I, I wouldn't think, I wouldn't agree to say that people don't care. A lot of times uh, people are not properly informed in a timely manner. They're not informed by means where every particular, every person has the, uh, the means to be. Uh, uh, I'll give you a prime example. 
this is the technology age. Everyone basically has a pump, has an iPad or an iPhone or whatever case may be, and a lot of us communicate by email. Well, there are some homeowners who are kind of digitally challenged, and they, st- they, they still depend upon notices by, by, uh, by the Postal Service. And so that's one, of the, that's one of the things that we've been trying to correct on the state level is about how do you, what means do you use, various means, to uh, inform uh, your neighbors about an upcoming meeting or about board elections. And then now in the body of that, let them understand what the requirements are if they are interested in serving as a board member because some neighbors think that they can't serve because they don't know the qualifications that hasn't been dis- that hasn't been disclosed to them in some in some respects. So it's and, and like Mike says, some some it's about apathy. So it's a double-edged sword. We really need to do better with our communication so that we can have more uh, more participation at the board meetings. Uh, this is a great example of what proper communication uh, and proper notice. Can can accomplish with bringing people out, and so I, I think the the local the boards and also just us in the general assembly need to find a way to statutorily help to to increase participation and uh, and interest. We have someone in the back, I believe, has a question. Yes, uh, my name's Mickey Pettis. I'm uh, president of the River Run Property Owners Association here in Davidson. Seven hundred and sixty-nine home development. And we've been here for 23 years. I just want to make one comment. Foreclosure is not our major issue. And it's not a major issue simply because we've only had one in 23 years. And the reason for that one, it was an abandoned property. And uh, Mr. Hunter represented us uh, in that uh, particular situation. And the only reason we foreclosed on the property is we were owed three years worth of dues from this particular homeowner. And we could not get the bank to wake up and foreclose on the property where they were past due on their, their mortgage. As soon as we processed the foreclosure and swooped the bank, knocked us out of line, and of course we didn't get the property. But the issue was to get them to move. Because as you said uh, earlier, um, uh, that uh, we do not want to have homes in our neighborhood that are empty. Uh, It's not good for property values to have them that are empty. So it's a very small issue. In terms of training for property owners associations, our management company requires that each new board member sit through three hours of training at their site. And we appreciate that a great deal because we learn about these particular issues uh, that we are not usually dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Again, the question about the um, uh, uh, apathy, yes, there's a lot of apathy. It's a thankless job. I I feel for my brethren that's sitting up there on the stage. (laughs) But... We have over 120 volunteers in various roles, neighbors, that are involved in our property owners association activities. And the only way to keep them involved, you've got to communicate on multiple, multiple, multiple levels. You can't just communicate one way and think they're all going to get it. 
Just a comment. And could I, could I, could I, could I give you a quick comment? I trust me, me, me more than anybody in this room understands the uh, the feeling of a thankless job. So, <laughs> so thank you for your comments. Uh, follow up on that. If someone just outright refuses to pay, what is what what is a homeowners association to do? Uh, what what is uh, maybe addressed this earlier by what is the solution to get them to pay? Mr. Moore, from I know you've you've talked or Representative Moore, you've talked about this a lot is through legislation. So I know that's one of your priorities is to keep things like that from happening. From that under I, my understanding is from your legislation, they, he wouldn't be able to do that, or well, his board wouldn't. Absolutely, uh, there there we're, we're still we're still working through that. Like I said, foreclosure and, and a lot of and people hone in on the foreclosure because that's something that I've been kind of focusing on but when you look at the total you look at the total what you need to do is find some way come up with some system where you can protect the community but you can also if the homeowner is having some issues you can find a way to give them a a graceful exit out of the property if that's what it that's what it takes without harming their ability to recover and, and, and move on and, to, and, and not be trapped in, in substandard housing conditions and other things because they may have had a hiccup or made a mistake uh, in this particular part of their life. And, and so that's a, that's, a tough, that's a tough balance to, uh, to strike, but we, we've, we've, we've been, had ongoing cons, con discussions in the General Assembly and we'll continue to do that. Mr. Breathen? I just add that, and that's perfect segue. We've had a couple instances in our neighborhood where people have lost their jobs. They've approached the board, and, and we've waived the immediate HOA dues, but we set up a payment plan once they got back on their feet. But they came to us and talked to us versus you know, going down the line of the letters and all the other stuff that happens with that. But it, we're approachable. Maybe some boards aren't so approachable that could be out there. Someone else from the audience? Yes, hi. My name is Troy, and I, I wanted to go to what the representative said. I've, I've served on a board that has been through every horror story you've talked about tonight, and I've, I've been a homeowner as well. Now, my question would lead to if you got into a situation as a homeowner where you felt the board was being vindictive, is there, there's really there's not a policing agent for that? There's no recourse for the homeowner because in a lot of these situations, the board will shield the management company in some situations from what actually is going on, and the attorney's the last one to find out. So as a homeowner, you feel like it is a small government coming at you. They're threatening, you know, before it gets to foreclosure even, when it's in the fining stage. That's when we had most of the issues, and it goes back to communication as well. If the homeowner participates in the conversation, 99 percent of the time the problem can be worked out. But what would you recommend if a homeowner felt that the board was being vindictive to them, what would you counsel them to do? Where should they turn other than small claims court? <laughs> okay. Uh, was the question directed at someone or? Okay. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of very hard to, to, to really give that answer simply because you're right there is no recourse for the homeowner because most of the time they can't afford legal representation 
The board can because the board hires legal representation through the dues that you pay. Uh, you, you don't have that luxury. And so what we've said on the state level, we've proposed some, some things to, to make a community, a community management company have to be a licensed real estate firm or the individual a licensed realtor. And by doing that, you can at least go to the real estate commission if there's a bad actor on the community management side and you could have some type of recourse there. But presently, uh, you're correct. There is uh, there's very little very little recourse or, or a place where you can really go and get some type of relief to counter what uh, some of the more aggressive HOAs may be uh, maybe uh, coming at you with. So it's a great question. Wish I had a better answer for you. Mr. Hunter? Um, I represent probably somewhere between six and 700 HOAs, and I cannot think of a single one that would refuse to set up a reasonable payment plan with someone who suffered a financial hardship. Um, <clears throat> even after it goes to lien or even foreclosure, most of them will agree to a reasonable payment plan. <clears throat> I had one case several years ago where a homeowner had not responded to any of the late notices, didn't respond to our lien or demand letter, didn't respond to anything. Bottom line, the foreclosure went all the way through start to finish. We went out there and met the deputy on the day of the eviction, and the deputy goes through, clears the house, makes sure there's no one inside, and lets us in. And they're sitting on the table inside the front door as a stack of mail, I kid you not, that tall of unopened mail and sitting on the top was our original letter that was sent to them six months ago. Um, what is an HOA to do in a case like that? Is, is foreclosure uh, an overbearing remedy in a case like that? Um, and I understand that some people think that foreclosure is too strong of a remedy as a dr draconian remedy, but when your only other option is filing a lawsuit in small claims court, which is ineffective for the most part, and can be very expensive, uh, exposes the HOA to counterclaims, what's the option? You know, I'm all ears. We have another question I want to get to quickly before I lose this thought. Are any of these letters required to be sent by certified mail? Yes. Okay. Uh, most people don't sign for certified mail because everyone knows certified mail means bad news. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. Uh, I'm a member of the Cornelius Antiquity subdivision, and uh, the declaration that we live under provides that the declaration cannot be amended without the consent of the developer. And he has that right to veto any change in the declaration as long as he owns one piece of property in the subdivision. As, with regard to the, the uh, board of directors, uh, the Articles of Incorporation name the developer and his two friends as the, mem the, the board, uh, the bylaws provide that the, uh, the, the developer uh, controls the board, he names the board, they serve at his pleasure, and nobody can serve on the board without his consent. And remember that he has that power as long as he owns one lot in the subdivision. My question to you is, is that lawful? Is that legal under North Carolina law? And is it something that the, the North Carolina legislature might want to look at? Mr. Hunter? Or 
Uh, yeah, basically that is legal. The developer is the one that creates the neighborhood. He drafts the restrictive covenants, and it is very common and understandable for a developer to want to retain control of the association while he's still trying to sell homes in there. Um, most responsible developers, even if they have the right to appoint all the members of the uh, board, as they start to get down to those last few lots, they'll start bringing some homeowners onto the board to ease the transition. Um, there was a proposal a couple years ago in, in the legislature that would mandate a transfer of HOA control from the developer to the homeowners, I think beginning when 75% of the lots were sold. And I think that's a fair idea. Uh, but you have to remember that the developer is the one that has the big bucks at stake. He's the one that bought the land, laid the streets, the curbs, the gutters, uh, the sewer lines, the water lines, has, has built the houses and all that kind of stuff. So he has a financial interest to protect, and one of the ways they do that is by retaining control of the board of directors. But uh, I don't think it's unreasonable to see a, a mandatory gradual shift of the power to the homeowners once uh, a certain percentage of the homes start being sold, and that was 75%. That bill did not pass the legislature. I, perhaps uh, Mr. Moore can say why. Well, it didn't, it didn't pass because uh, you couldn't get uh, the ma a majority of representatives and a majority of senators to agree. Now, back to your question, is it legal under North <laughs> Absolutely, uh, and that's just the long and short of it. Uh, is it legal under North Carolina uh, under North Carolina law at this time? Yes, it is. But is it right and is it moral and is does it is it good business practice? Then the, the situation that you described, me personally, since I'm here on this panel and you want to hear what I think, I think that uh, that's that's a bad situation, and uh, I think after a certain point. In the, in the buyout of the development that the homeowners should be able to have autonomy over their community. That's just my thought. The, the, the law mandates that planning committees have to have an HOA. After so much time, does, does the HOA have to exist forever? I mean, is there any point where the, the HOA, if, if the members decide, can they dissolve it if, if there's so many problems? I'm, well, I, I don't I don't. I think that uh, HOA, a community, can vote to uh, get to get rid of an HOA. Uh, I don't know what is it, three fourths, eighty percent, eighty percent of the residents uh, of the homeowners in in the subdivision can vote to uh, to, uh, to dissolve to dissolve the HOA. Okay. We have another question. Uh, let's. This uh, person right here has been uh, waiting a long time. I know. Okay. Um, Two things. Number one, uh, sort of an anecdotal item. Uh, walking out of a board meeting one night, my wife asks one of the board members, have you read the covenants? Have you read the bylaws? Have you read the declarations? And this board member says, we don't have time to read all that stuff. That would occupy us from now till heck freezes over we have stuff to do now on the other thing that gets in my uh crawl is the way the amendment process works the amendment process looks like what congress is cranking out uh line number three of paragraph number five is deleted and this paragraph goes in well 
you end up with things like this, and bear with me for just a moment. There's number four, board of directors. 4A, the board of directors of the association shall consist of five persons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 4B, election of directors shall be conducted in the following manner. 4B2. Now, 4B1 was deleted a while back. Mm -hmm. So 4B2, all members of the board uh, shall be elected by a plurality of the votes cast at the annual meeting of the members of the association. Now, that clipped off an appurtenant vote, which is kind of weird. Uh, 4B3 says there shall be five directors elected for three-year staggered terms. Directors shall remain in office until their terms have expired, blah, 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 blah. Do you have, do you have a question four, for the moderate? Well, yeah, yeah. 4B4 four four says there shall be five directors. Each, the members of the each board shall serve until their successor's annual meeting of the members are elected and qualified. Each director shall hold office for a term of one year. Now, three and four. Three says three years. Four says one year. This happens because of the way these amendments are structured. The guys don't go through and compile them together. And invariably, they're breaking bylaw rules every time they go into a meeting. Mr. Breathen, is there a lot of confusion when you're changing laws? Is it, is it, it, when you're changing rules, is it, is it harder? Is it an easy process, a difficult process? Well, since I've been on the board, we have not changed anything on the commencer guidelines. And it, it's pretty boilerplate. There's nothing special about it. We have five board members. We serve two years at a time, three, year, three at one time. And then, like, I was just elected this past January, so I'll serve for two more years unless I resign. And then there's three board members that will come up next year. It's pretty clear in our guidelines. Someone else? Joe Mercier. I'm a former board president. Um, I'm trying to get back to what the meeting's about. It says the HOA, HOA and you, who rules the neighborhood. I'm guessing that there is a perceived uh, problem about overbearing boards or draconian measures instituted by boards. If so, how much of a problem is this? Is this endemic or is it isolated to a handful of cases? I never got an impression on that. Um, I'll leave it at that point. Okay. Um, Representative Moore? And, well, and then Mr. Hunter? Well, if you look at all of the HOA organizations in, in North Carolina, of course we have some HOAs who, who are uh, beneficial to their community. They do all the right things. But there are some, there are some bad actors out there. There are some bad actors as, as far as uh, HOAs, and there are some bad actors as far as residents. Um, in, since my, in my experience, I tend to hear all of the bad stories, all of the horror stories. And no, if, Nobody comes to you and brags how great their HOA is. No, absolutely <laughs> not. And so if you would come to my office and I have a young man who has is, is, is kind of talked with me in the audience, I have... I have a file, files this thick of complaints, affidavits, and, and other things against about the bad actors. Now, I'm not, type, I'm not casting dispersions upon all HOAs. The only, only uh, point I'm trying to make is that the bad ones the, or, or the overzealous ones or overly, ag overly aggressive ones uh, kind of get the attention 
where some of the ones who are doing things right and complying with the law uh, don't get noticed. And we here in the General Assembly, we hear about all of the horror story, all of the, uh, of the, uh, of the complaints. So I, I wouldn't say it's the systemic. It's just that we, we hear about it. And if we hear about it long enough, then we have an obligation to, to at least try to re- react and respond and fix, try to fix the problem. I think just talking to people, some people have trouble understanding why I can't do something to my own house. I would like uh, I would like a green door, a dark green door instead of a black door, but I have to have a black door. And the, and the association says that because of the association rules. Why are rules like that important? Is anyone, or Mr. Breathen, can you shed light on that? Why? I think that's something that's a common thing that frustrates a lot of people. Why, why are these such a big deal, and why do you, do you ever find for things like this, and why? All the time. Um, yeah. <laughs> Great subject. Uh, and it's just recently, uh, it's in the, like, say your garage doors and your house door is supposed to match your siding. And uh, we had a recent uh, episode where two people uh, freshly painted their garage door after moving in. And uh, guess what? It didn't match the siding because the siding was has faded. We had people come to the board and complain that they weren't in compliance to the colors of their garage door or their house door. Um, then all of a sudden, people started saying, well, there's a lot of red doors in the neighborhood. Uh, you're supposed to be brown or green. Uh, and then I realized that there's several people on the board that have red doors. So it's like, <laughs> not me. Um, so part of it is... Uh, I don't know if it's just everyone wants to be universal and kind of plain, but we've, we are looking for people, and we at our annual meeting, we want to look at all our guidelines of that and come to some common sense of what really matters. Obviously, maybe you want a fluorescent orange door, but maybe you want to have a red door. Maybe that's not so bad. But part of it is there's the side over here that says, this is what it says, and this, uh, this is what this person didn't do, and now you've got to do something about it. But we've, we've reached out to those folks and said, look, at, let's, let's look at everything, and let's make some sense out of it and come up with a good guideline. But, yeah, it, it, it's common. It's some, okay, right here. I just wanted to return the conversation to the developer issue. Um, I'm the president of an HOA that was recently transferred from the developer control to the homeowner control. And our problem is we've inherited a lot of neglect and issues with the developer. And if this isn't something that's more controlled by the statute, it probably should be. Um, because now as a, as a homeowner association, we have a lot of challenges to get our budget balanced, to make do on uh, or make good on our debts, and uh, a lot of neglect with the community assets. And um, the developer's happy to walk away from all that. So comments would be appreciated on that issue. Are you talking about cases where there are a lot of the, the developer just ignored a lot of violations? Not necessarily. We have a we have a community clubhouse and swimming pool, and um, so neglect on the actual assets themselves. Um, we probably have over six thousand dollars worth of repair to the swimming pool before we can open it this summer, right. um, and that was all under the developer's control. They just chose not to take on those repairs. Um, likewise, we have you know silly things like just a lot of silt fencing left around the neighborhood that should have been removed. It hasn't been. They're trying to ignore that obligation. Those are just a couple of examples, but I could probably go on for hours and list 
Yeah, well, we saw a lot of that during the uh, the economic downturn. There was, I mean, there's there was a lot of half finished subdivisions where the developer just folded, left uh, a lot of things undone, and that posed a problem for the homeowners who were already there, and it posed also another problem for the investors who eventually came in and bought those unsold lots and trying to sell them off. Uh, there really is no easy answer. Usually in a, in a subdivision, the developer funds the deficits for the HOA until it's able to stand on its own. Um, but if you've got a developer who is cash-strapped, especially one who came through that recession, you know, you were talking three or four years ago, you know, the developers just didn't have the money, and there weren't enough homeowners there paying dues to keep up the clubhouse and things like that. So it's, you know... It, is it a question of just a, a developer who's being irresponsible? Maybe. Is it just a question of the economics uh, being such that the developer didn't have the money? Perhaps. Maybe I can be a little more precise. Mm-hmm. As I understand, when it transferred, they essentially just signed the deeds over to mm-hmm. now the homeowners association. Mm-hmm. There was no acceptance process. There was no inspection. There was no anything. It just mm-hmm. at some date in time, mm-hmm. we became responsible for all of these assets mm-hmm. and. Uh, what I'm hearing is that's probably they did it right, but then to Mr. Moore, we, we need to address that in a statute. There should be an acceptance before an association becomes responsible for these assets and, and the debt that they incur associated to that. So. Did you want to say something, Mr. Moore, uh, Representative Moore? Uh, just, I just think that you're, you're spot on, and, and, and it's, it's, this is good that we have these type of community conversations because, uh, you know, we, we, we're in our committees, and, of course, we're concerned about, uh, about this issue, but we only have such a, a limited breadth of knowledge. You guys, for the most part, live in your HOAs, and you know your neighbors, you know your board, so it is very important that you communicate with us at the state level and give us proper feedback, whether we want to hear it or not. Uh, you know, I take all calls and emails. I check all my emails, whether, whether there's things that they're praising me or they're calling me expletives, <laughs> which has been a lot. Uh, but, you know, we, we have to have some line of communication between our, our neighbors and their elected officials. And, and I invite you to uh, and all of you here to, to, to call my office, email me and give me feedback, you know, past this forum. Uh, ongoing so that we can we can get it right we can get it right and it can be something that's palatable for everybody involved and that's the way that that policy should be made by by the you know with the input of the people so thank you for for your for your input you had someone over here hi my name's david and i live in a community that's been around since 1974 and our homeowners association has a lot of problems and i can't go into them all right now, but some of the basic ones go to the democratic process, that the law governing homeowners associations sort of assumes there's a democratic process at heart, that one man, one vote. Well, we had a rewrite of our bylaws, which gives multiple votes if you own multiple lots. So it's no longer just one man, one vote. And we have an owner that operates... I had operated about a dozen LLCs, has about a thousand votes or a thousand lots, and we have maybe about a hundred homes. And we have some townhomes. He owns some townhomes, but basically he has voting control. 
he has enough influence with the board that he's not paying dues. He's gobbled up um, property from people that were paying dues, so our financers are going heavily into the red. Our board refuses to file liens on the individual. He has loans on the property in millions of dollars which exceed its value. Um, what is our recourse as homeowners? Is there a state agency we can go to, our state representative? We can't get a rogue board or a, our board to address the issue of going after this delinquent. He's been delinquent for at least eight years in paying dues. So our, our finances, we've been eating off of our savings. And we'll be to the point that we're going to have to start selling our amenities to survive. So is there a provision in the law that the democratic process, it should be one man, one vote, or does it allow for multiple lot owners to have multiple votes? And are there other recourses we can go after uh, getting our past dues or getting assurances of future dues when the property has so many liens on it that we'll never be able to get anything out of uh, foreclosing on the properties? Yeah, you've got a, a couple options. First of all, with respect to the number of lots, uh, every association that I represent, it's always one lot, one vote, and really that's how it should be because the the owner that has the most at stake should have the most say in how things are run. It's no different than a for-profit corporation. You know, if Warren Buffett is the largest shareholder of a, of a bank, he's going to have the biggest say. Uh, he's got the most at stake. He's got the largest investment. That being said... The board of directors, regardless of who puts them there, if they're elected by all the homeowners or they're appointed by the developer, the board of directors have a fiduciary duty to all of the members of the association, not to just the one who owns the most lots. And that fiduciary duty includes taking legal action against owners who are delinquent in their dues. Uh, So I guess the answer to your question is what legal recourse do the owners have? you could bring a lawsuit against the board of directors for breach of fiduciary duty for failing to take appropriate action to collect the dues and force the restrictive covenants or whatever else it is that they're not doing that they should be doing. Okay. Next question over here. This is another question uh, back to the developers. Um, my name is Carla. I'm from an HOA um, outside Mooresville. And our development was created in 2006 The developer built a home for himself in this development and created the HOA, but he excluded his home from being in the HOA. And since that time, he has uh, passed away and his property has been sold, but we were told when it was sold that that exclusion went with the deed, and so we can't bring it back into the association. I want to know if we have any kind of legal remedy or recourse to try and bring that uh, property owner in other than inviting him to join. No, not really. If it it was done correctly by the developer originally and he carved out one piece of property that was not part of the association, not governed by the restrictive covenants, there's nothing you can do to force that on there. And that's Um, forever, right? Yeah, exactly. I I have one question from uh, someone... uh, uh, so someone we we took we got some questions by email in advance of this. I want to read uh, one of them. Uh, what guidance can you give an HOA board when current HOA covenants are more restrictive than state or federal law? For example, restricting the display of yard signs for especially for elections. Can the HOA covenants be applied, or do the appropriate laws take precedence? 
Yes, HOA restrictions can be more restrictive than local rules or, or ordinances. And can HOA rules override constitutional protections that we have from the government then, like First Amendment? Uh, yes, and the reason is if you think about constitutional protections, and, and I don't pretend to be a constitutional scholar, um, but if I'm not mistaken, the U.S. Constitution was, was designed to protect citizens from acts of the government. Uh, HOAs are private institutions, private nonprofit corporations, and uh, you know, the, the bottom line is if you buy a home in a community that has restrictive covenants, it goes back to what Mr. Moore was saying. You need to educate yourself before you buy a home in that community because you, when you buy a home in a, a deed-restricted community, you're agreeing to be bound by those rules. So do your homework before you buy. Representative Moore? Well, Mike, Mike, unfortunately, Mike is right. <laughs> but there, there, there again, there, there, therein lies the, 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 the need for, for more conversation and, and more reform. Because I think it was mentioned before that some HOAs have become little quasi-governments unto themselves. And, you know, the homeowner has no recourse. And, and so I think that is very important. I always stress the importance of conversation. But um, there again, you need to take an active part in, in, in your process, in your governing process and how policy is made. Um, this, is, this is a good start. I'm, I'm very encouraged by, by the turnout. But when this conversation, this program ends, this conversation needs to continue because there has been some gross, gross uh, examples of, of, of overstepping bounds by a private nonprofit as it relates to the sovereignty of a homeowner's right to manage and, and manage their own property. And so at some point in time, in the next session, if I'm so if I'm so lucky to be sent back by my district, I will be, I'm looking right now at some legislation for some other states, and I will be proposing a comprehensive homeowner's bill of rights to, uh, to address not only the HOA issue, but just basic fundamental uh, rights of homeowners and protections in the state of North Carolina. So, so that is something that I'm presently working on with my legislative staff. And, uh, and so that will be ongoing. I love your feedback, your input about what needs to be in, what suggestions need to be in legislation. But, but there again, we, we, we've heard, I, I think it's clear that there has to be some type of community conversation and reform about HOAs, the laws, and the statutes that presently don't work for everybody. And that's my goal, is it for the work, not only for the developer, but for the people who actually invest into the greatest, biggest investment that they're ever going to invest in, some of them, which is their home. So, so that's my focus. Depending on where you live, I mean, it can be hard sometimes to live, to find a, a neighborhood that doesn't have an HOA. As mentioned earlier, most communities around here, especially new ones, 
uh, newer ones are, are, are represented by HOAs. But are there significant differences in HOAs? Uh, can anyone speak to that? Are there some where you can do what you want, but they have an HOA, or you, I don't know, they let you paint your door whatever color you want, or put your car up on blocks, or whatever? I don't yeah, <laughs> if that's what you want. <laughs> well, it just depends on the uh, the character of the neighborhood. I mean, there are some neighborhoods that have no amenities whatsoever. It's just they're public streets, individual lots, and the only thing the HOA is responsible for is maintaining the entrance monument at the entrance to the neighborhood. Dues are $60 a year. Um, and then you've got other ones. Uh, typically, the more restrictive ones are the multifamily, the condos and the townhomes, which because of the proximity of the residents to each other, you know, your neighbors on the other side of the wall or ceiling or floor, uh, by their very nature, they need to be more restrictive. Um, <laughs> um, one, one thing I do want to address is, is the question of, of overbearing HOAs. Mm-hmm. Um, I, with the column I write for the Observer, I get a lot of calls and a lot of emails every week from readers uh, telling their uh, horror stories with their HOAs. Uh, for all the stories I get f- uh, from people complaining about how overbearing their HOAs are, I get an equal number of inquiries from homeowners who are complaining because their HOAs are not enforcing the restrictive covenants. So it cuts both ways. So back here. Um, my name is Gary Knight. I've served in uh, Cornelius for six years on, a, on an HOA in the Jatan Cove neighborhood. I now live in Charlotte and serve on an, a condo HOA. And I've had uh, quite a bit of, uh, of time spent thinking about the kinds of things that uh, Mr. Uh, Hunter has been talking about and also about the kinds of things that Mr. Representative Moore is, is going to be proposing. So let me some, propose some things for, an, for, 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 for your Bill of Rights. The first part of the Bill of Rights is to recognize that no, no single homeowner who goes into an HOA writes the covenants, the disclosures, the documents, or the bylaws. That's the builder. So the first part of the Bill of Rights is to protect the owners from scurrilous builders or lazy builders or, I'm sorry to say this, lazy lawyers who boilerplate out the, whatever they've had from some other homeowners association to uh, uh, create the documents that are going to govern the association once it's been turned over. That's number one. Number two is to make certain that when new owners buy into a HOA, we, you've made some adjustments in this past year where you require the realtors to give them documents to the owners at the closing. Well, at the closing is the time when you're signing your name 700 times. You're not about to read 700 pages of documents. Those documents should be provided within three, two to three months before a closing so that the owners, that when, as part of the contingency process, so that when the, these, that, that people who are naively buying into an HOA don't do so without understanding what they're getting into. Because what often happens is, especially today, people and someone in California will look at a building, in, at a home in, in, in Cornelius and say, that looks nice, makes a purchase of it, long distance, sees the house for the first time when they walk into it, discovers they're living in an HOA, they can't paint their house red, they can't do the, this to their yard, they can't do that, and they go, why can't I? So I think North Carolina, the legislature has a responsibility in terms of protecting the owners 
and protecting these individual homeowners that have suffered some egregious things, it starts with the builder. It starts with the lawyers, and it starts with the, and it starts with the lack of education. Hold on one second. Correct me if I'm wrong. There has been some recent legislation I, I passed. I stated that. What? I stated that. Okay, I'm sorry. The, the third thing is that there should be board training before anyone's allowed to run for a board of an HOA. Forget training them after they're on the board. They're not going to pay any attention to you. And I've, been in, I've seen boards where people have not read the, read the documents, don't understand them, don't care to understand them, and just want to be uh, King Tut for that small community. There are other people who, are, who take the time to read it and pay attention to it and make sense out of it and try to do the right thing. But it's, but it's very important, that I, and I think the suggestion of training board members is important, but it's too late when they're on the board because they've got the power and they don't have the need to be trained. Okay. Okay. The fourth how, thing, how long is your list? We, we, we've got a lot of people here that want to ask questions. Fourth, fourth, fourth part is I want to point out there's a mistake that's been made sort of suggested. This gentleman said that in one part of his bylaws, people can only do things for one year, and one part of the bylaws they serve for three years. The answer to the question is, your bylaws, your officer, your, your directors are elected for a three-year period, but your officers are elected only for a one-year period. There's no contradiction. There's no inherent contradiction in that. The fourth thing is that the... Sir, is there a question? I mean, we've, we've, we have other people... We, we were said statements or questions. We've heard a lot of statements. We ask you to be concise. I'm being as concise as I can. The fifth thing is that we, requ we should require open board meetings unless it's required to be an executive session where you're discussing personnel issues or something else because boards often will do things out of sight and, and, and sound of the... Of the, of, the, uh, of, the, of the owners of the property. In our case, both in Jaton Cove and in, and in Charlotte, all of our meetings are open to the entire membership, and that's what creates that volunteerism. I have about four more things, and I'll send uh, them to you, Representative. Uh, I think but we're going to move on. But I, but all right. I'm happy to send them to you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for your comments. And thank you for your comments. Okay. There's some other questions. Concern. Wendy? Um, at what point, I'm not going to identify myself, um, and you'll understand why when I ask the question, um, at what point would you uh, request a forensic uh, accounting of your homeowners association financial statement, and who would be the appropriate person to request that? What's the process? Well, I mean, is it a question as a homeowner or as a board member? Uh, as a homeowner. As a homeowner? As a you can certainly request that the board have a, an audit or a review done uh, if you suspect there's some improprieties in the way the books have, have been kept. Um, it's that say, unless there's something specific in the bylaws that says an audit or review shall be conducted annually, it's really up to the board of directors to decide when one is necessary. Some, someone right here. Yes. Um, we don't have a developer. The original developer was the developer. Can we take someone's votes away from them if they don't pay their dues? If your bylaws say you can. 
what, what the statute says is you can susp- if a homeowner is delinquent in payment of their assessments or is in violation of the covenants, bylaws, rules, and regulations, you can suspend community services and privileges after notice and a hearing. Now, the question is, is voting a privilege or is it a right? My thoughts are voting is a right. I don't think it's a privilege that can be taken away. So my opinion is that if you want to suspend the owner's voting rights, you can only do it if your bylaws give you that authority. If, if your covenants give you that authority, then absolutely you have the authority to suspend, suspend voting rights. What, what role does, does local government, traditional local government, have in these communities? I guess the, the police protection, obviously, but anything, sidewalks or, 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 or street paving, anything? I mean, is it... Anything you go to your local government for? Well, it depends on whether they have private streets or public streets. I mean, uh, a lot of communities are developed with private streets, gated communities, for example. In those cases, the homeowners association has to maintain the streets. Um, For example, townhome communities, you've got the roads and the parking areas in between the townhomes. Those are common areas that are owned by the HOA that the HOA has to maintain. But, uh, you know, I would say the majority of, of subdivisions that are built are built uh, initially with the roads are private until development is finished. And at the completion of development, the developer uh, dedicates the streets to the city or the state who accepts the dedication. They become public, and the state takes over maintenance. Yeah. All right. Someone back Just here? Just go talking? Okay, thanks. Um, we have a development in which we sell the lots, and the homeowner is responsible for building their home. When we sell the lot, we're very conscientious about our master deed and our homeowners associations, rules and regulations, that we go over those with our buyers. But if a second of a lot is resold, then we're often not involved in that, and it seems like that's a time in which the ball gets dropped. Now, we have been under the assumption that when the lawyer, and it works this way some of the times, but not all the time, when the lawyer does a title search that in the courthouse there is a way for them to detect that this property is under a homeowner's association and would acquire those papers for them at the time of closing. That's happened some of the time, but not all of the time. And I just wondered how that is structured in our courthouses. Well, there was a law passed a couple years ago that requires mandatory disclosures of the existence of an HOA and certain things like that. You want to talk about that? Yeah, there there has been a law passed. I think it was in 2011-2012 uh, that you had to disclose uh, the existence of HOA to a uh, prospective buyer, whether, whether they were a new build or they were a resale. And so that has, you know, that's in statute now. Uh, do a lot of the uh, attorneys disclose? We would hope that they would be compliant, that they would comply with the law. But there again... Uh, some do, some don't. So, but it is it is a, it is mandatory for them to disclose uh, the presence if if that buyer is buying into an HOA. Kind of give them an example of the, of the of the covenants and declarations. I think the disclosure, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the disclosure requirements apply if there's real estate brokers involved. Uh, I think that the rules really apply to, to licensed real estate brokers. Right. Not, not, if it, if it's, not, right. not for for sale by owners, then it's a little gray area. But if there's a broker in the transaction, then it has to be disclosed to the, to the, to the, to the buyer. 
And the real estate commission was ordered by the legislature to develop an actual disclosure form to be included as part of their offer to purchase and contract. Some of the things that had to be closed are things like, uh, you know, a copy of the by- a declaration and the bylaws, uh, what the assessment rate is, um, copies of the financial statements, uh, whether or not there's any litigation pending against the association, and whether there are any uh, uh, special assessments pending. So there, there are protections in place, and, and the broker should be complying with those. Mr. Breathen, have you had to, as your organization, as your HOA done more to uh, disclose what your rules are, get the word out? We uh, have them on our website. Uh, we have them in all our board meetings in case someone wants to read them. Uh, so we do have them published. It is ironic when I bought my house here in Hartsville, we kept on knowing there was rules and regulations, but we got until we moved into the house and went and got to the website, we, we read them there. So at a closing, we had nothing. The only thing they kept on hitting us at the closing was you're in an impervious area, you know, you can't build a you know, patio, you know, mm-hmm. based on your lot size. But yeah, it would be nice to have that up front to read them before you uh, buy that house. Someone back here? My question uh, has to do with uh, the prevalence of uh, third-party agencies or or, uh, uh, major corporations that are now acquiring homes, turning them into rental properties inside uh, what used to be uh, single-family developments. And what recourse does the HOA have against... uh, these uh, corporations that might be coming in, acquiring properties, and then renting them out, oftentimes to, uh, you know, I'll say students or other individuals that might have four or five or six uh, renters in them, and the and no uh, no pride in the property, so to speak. Does the uh, HOA have any recourse to deal with situations such as those? Yeah, I mean, basically, you treat those investment companies just like you would any other owner. If there are violations of the restrictive covenants, you you treat them just like you would an individual homeowner. It's no different. Uh, Obviously, the association cannot control who buys homes in the neighborhood. Uh, But once they do buy, they're bound by the same rules everyone else is. Who has the say when for-profit corporations are renting renting out houses and HOAs? Is it the, the corporations that own it, or is it the renters? If, they're, if, if the renters are paying the HOA dues, assuming they are, maybe they're not, it's part of their rent. Uh, the HOA's recourse is against the owner. But, the H, but as far as if, if there's more votes per, for a, if, if, if the one lot per vote rule applies, are for-profit corporations having more of a say in HOAs? Is this a, is this a common thing that you're seeing? No, it's still one lot, uh, one vote per lot, regardless of whether it's a corporation. But if they own several lots, I guess, is what I'm saying. There's right. several homes in a neighborhood. Sure. Uh, it's a situation we discussed earlier. If there's a, is a corporation or investment company that acquires multiple lots in a community, they have however many votes uh, equal to the number of lots they own. And the renters don't have a vote? No, the renters okay. don't have a vote. How does one enforce... Which one are... Uh, okay. Hello. I think we all agree that it's important that homeowners understand what's expected of them before they purchase their property. And I think it's important that we all have access to the bylaws so we know. Um, Is there any way for a homeowner to know in advance what type of homeowners association they're dealing with? 
I, I hear that there are some that are overly zealous and maybe some that aren't very well organized and aren't doing enough. Is there, I'm envisioning sort of a better business bureau type group um, where you could check and see, well, these are the bylaws, but even more than that, what is my homeowners association like before you buy into that neighborhood? Well, I had a friend who was uh, just recently looking at buying a condominium in a condo complex that I represent the association for, and he wanted to know, you know, tell me about this place. And I said, well, here's a board member. You need to call him and talk to him. And they had an excellent conversation, email exchange, and the board member gave him all kinds of information about the history of the complex and uh, what repairs had been made and, and, and what was expected and things like that. Uh, you can talk to the property manager, find out who's the property managers for the association, talk to him. You can talk to neighbors. Uh, but I guess to answer your question, there is no clearinghouse, there is no BBB, so to speak, for, for homeowners associations. Um, it's just a matter of getting to the right person and asking the right questions. It should be. Uh, have there been proposals to do that? Anything similar like that? Just out of curiosity, by show of hands, how many people in the audience are either current or former board or committee member for their HOA? <laughs> okay. Uh, how many here are just a, as individual homeowners? So, okay. Okay. I'm not sure that, well, I guess it is. Um, how does the board enforce the covenants and restrictions, particularly? Going back to this other person's comment about um, there's a restriction, or there's a government covenant that more than three unrelated members can't reside in a home. Mm -hmm. And as in his example, um, somebody comes in and they've got a bunch of college students. What do you do when they're still paying their dues? Um, both the Condominium Act and the Planned Community Act give HOAs uh, certain procedures that they can follow to enforce the covenants. Um, most HOAs will send at least two violation notices first. The first one is sort of a friendly reminder. The second one a little more stern warning. If they don't hear anything from the owner or the problem persists, the HOA can uh, schedule a hearing before the board of directors and send a notice of hearing to the homeowner. And at that hearing, the homeowner has the opportunity to come and present their side of the story, uh, present whatever evidence or witnesses they have. And the board decides whether or not there has been a violation, and if so, whether they, th there should be fines levied against them. Uh, the HOA can levy fines up to a maximum of $100 for a violation or $100 a day for a continuing violation. Um, I'm a big proponent, and I tell my clients all the time, that the fine process is not meant to be a profit center for your HOA. Its sole purpose is to... Uh, and to get people to comply with the covenants, and I always tell them, once a homeowner ceases the violation, brings the property in compliance, waive most or all of the fines. There were some there were some chuckles just now when you said not meant to be a profit center. Is it where does that money go? Is it do does anyone benefit from it, or where does that does that money go? It just Obviously goes into the woman. coffers of the HOA. By state law, directors and officers of HOAs cannot be paid to serve in that capacity. Uh, very quickly, Greg, I heard something in, in the young in the gentleman's comment back there, uh, and it was something that was very subtle. And I, and I, I was sitting here, and it was eating at me, and I want to address it. There, he said what he said in his comment. He talked about college students, but he also talked about uh, residents or renters 
who had five or six renters in the property and who had no pride in in that particular piece of property. So so I, I want to just be very careful about our language because that 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 that's kind of that to me to me and, and, and with the fair housing experience that I have that's 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 kind of uh that, that might be misconstrued as being some type of discriminatory language. But I'm I'm very glad that you... uh, He said you certainly misconstrued it, for those who didn't hear it. Very glad that you cleared that up for me. Okay. Thank you for that. Appreciate you. Yes. um, Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yes, my name's Angel, and I just moved into a development a little over a year ago in Mount Holly. And uh, when I first moved there, um, obviously buying a home is a big purchase, and the biggest thing that I saw... I mean, I looked around a lot, but when you move in, you start seeing more than you realized. Um, There were streets, uh, especially the curbs. There was a lot, a lot of times, like, the concrete was broken. And so I started to learn myself who is responsible for this. And um, before I closed on my uh, home, I asked for the bylaws. The realtor said he'd get a hold of them. I asked, who do I talk to? He had no clue. Of course, we closed without them, and we ended up with them a little bit after that, um, but it was really, it, I struggled to learn in the neighborhood what responsibilities we had as homeowners and who were responsible for doing things. Um, there's a lot being left, you know, not so, not done. I went to the first meeting and addressed some of the things that was going on. I had already got the city involved, actually me and my husband had got the city involved to fit some sidewalks, and I asked why do the residents not know who to contact? Who to, you know, you know why do we not know who to, if we should contact the city on the curbs? Because people in the development just did not know. Well, we have Cedar Management, a management company that's also involved. So what, what I would like to know is what responsibilities does the board have as an HOA and what responsibilities are the Cedar Management supposed to be? Because we're, we're supposedly paying like $10,000 a year for the management company, but yet nothing's getting done in the neighborhood. So what, what roles do they have? Well, what you have to remember is <clears throat> the management company answers to the board of directors. Uh, I guess my first question for you is, are your streets public or private? They're public? Okay, well, then the first phone call to be made would be to the city of Charlotte or the state if they're state-owned roads uh, about the... Um, the, the condition of the streets. Um, I, I do get that question quite a lot from homeowners, uh, you know, who say, you know, you know it, for example, a condominium, you know, so our, our roof needs replaced and the siding needs replaced. They're not doing this. They're not painting. The landscaping needs updating. Well, what you have to remember is that the HOA board has a budget that they have to work within, and they cannot a lot of times accommodate the request and demand of every single homeowner. They have to look at the big picture, and they have to prioritize how their expenses are are spent. Um, did not even know that the city was responsible for the streets. They were not educated, even though they were the president and the vice president of the board. They couldn't even tell me that that was not an HOA situation or the city. I had to learn that myself and contact them. And that's where the communication falls apart, and no one else in the neighborhood would, would know that either. 
if the board itself doesn't know that, hey, our roads are public and the, the curbs, the sidewalk actually is a city thing and not the HOA's responsibility. Mm-hmm. All right. yeah. I, one more question, and then I th- we're about at that time, getting a little restless. <laughs> see if you get a little restless and people leaving, but so right. we have time for one more question. Uh, my name is Jay. I've come up here from South Charlotte, where I'm president of a condo board uh, in a condominium that has 82 units. Um, I want to go back to the, um, the title of this, is your HOA and you, who rules the neighborhood. Um, I've tried to impress in a newsletter that we write um, on our owners that if you buy into a condominium, it's a shared responsibility amongst all of us here to look after this community and enhance it in every way possible and take a role in its governance. We happen to be the elected members of the board, but we're open. Anybody can run for this board. You can come anytime. You can run uh, during our annual meetings, and you can come to us and see us, call us on a telephone, and so forth. So I think we're very open. However, our particular development, we provide, it's just the way we're organized, centrally, um, cooling during the summer, heating during the winter, hot water, water throughout the year, and a lot of other amenities. We have uh, seven owners out of 84 who are, out of 82, who are now delinquent up to a year and a half. We're owed $60,000 by these people, and we have liens taken out, we have foreclosure proceedings, but it takes forever to get through the courts. In the meantime, we have endless demands for work to be done on every single aspect of the buildings, whether it's facias, sidewalks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I would suggest that if our state state legislature is going to investigate ways of weakening the condo board's um, uh, procedures or what's available to them for collecting, that on the other, the corollary to that is that the state government should create a fund out of which they can provide grants or at least interest-free loans to condominiums that are struggling to get by and to to preserve themselves, enhance themselves, preserve property values, um, and do everything that all the owners would like to have done. Okay. All right. (laughs) On that note, I want to thank our guests for being here and and answering our, our questions. Thank you all. Thank mm-hmm. you.